This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, Iron Cloud Original, presented by Six Hour. So I started this podcast well before Iron Cloud was involved when I had heard that there are no barriers to entry to start a podcast. Well, there were barriers to entry for me. Uh, Maybe if you're a little more technically inclined, you can pull it off. But for me, I needed the uh, the expertise of those at Ironclad to really make this something that uh, was professional and something that uh, that I could be proud of. So before that, I bought some podcast equipment and I recorded a bunch of episodes. And this one is from November of 2019, and it's with the incomparable David Morell, the creator of Rambo, uh, whose debut novel, First Blood, which came out in 1972, has never been out of print. And we recorded this podcast at BoucherCon, which is an author uh, and fan uh, conference. And it's a it's a blast. So if you ever get a chance to go, I highly recommend it. And uh, we recorded this podcast. Of course, I didn't know what I was doing. So this will be audio only. And uh, it cuts off about halfway through, which I feel horrible about. But uh, I wanted to get this out there for those that are fans of David Morrell, uh, of the uh, of Rambo of uh, writing. So this will be out there. And I promise that uh, David Morell and I will get back together and do a proper uh, podcast soon uh, with video and all the rest. So um, without further ado, here it is, David Morell. David Morell. Oh my goodness. Jack Carr. Oh my goodness. I am... (laughs) This is such an honor oh, to be you. here with you. I can't, uh, I mean, it's hard for me to put into words exactly what having you say yes to this means, what have oh, I'm what happy. it means to, uh, for you to mentor new authors and to be available at these, these events and to just be such an advocate for, for writing, for reading, uh, for the thriller genre in general. And uh, it's, uh, it means a lot to me to, to have you here. So, uh, so before we kick off, um, I just want to, this is very special for me for a lot of reasons, but uh the first one is that uh, before you even knew who I was, uh, you had a huge impact on my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about as a, an author, um, although that was significant. Uh, it is my path into the SEAL teams. And in Brotherhood of the Rose, there's one sentence, one sentence only that says SEAL in it yes. in, that, uh, in that novel. And uh, that sentence uh, says that seals are near the top of a, a pyramid. Yes, that's correct. I remember the passage. Yep. Yes. And uh, so that confirmed to me that I was on the right path and I was heading, I was going to be an author one that day. Was, it, it, the fewer, the fewer people in the unit and the most, one could argue, highly trained as a consequence for, by definition, because there were so few that can be trained more. Well, it was, uh, it was very impactful to a uh, seventh grader reading yeah. Brotherhood of the Rose. And uh, then I was on a, a, a journey from then on, everything that you, uh, you wrote from then on. And uh, I, was, I was there to read. It was before the days of the internet. So you never knew when, when a book was coming out, especially if you're 12, 13, 14 years old back in the 80s. It's, you didn't really know. It's made such a big difference. The, there are many things wrong with the internet in terms of encouraging views that were marginalized before but now find that they have like-minded and they think they have power. <clears throat> but uh, one plus is that um, for, for us, we are able to communicate with readers uh, through Twitter and Facebook and what have you. And 
um, that we can let people know what's going on because before it was either print ads, God, right? And I take out print ads. I the, a mystery scene magazine. Yeah. I think that's a really terrific pe- way to let people know about our work. And I I have uh, uh, print ads in mystery scene, uh, but uh, there were the the ways of getting it done were limited. And and it, it, unless you were famous and you got on TV and you got to promote your book, so so you make a good point about that. And we'll, we'll get into some other things that were uh, uh, highly valuable, I think, as far as promotion <laughs> for you when some movies came out. Oh, well, but, yes. Uh, <laughs> we can talk about that later, but I, I want to get to that eventually. But um, let's talk about Testament okay. before we get there. So I read Testament a little later, so I discovered um, you How first. How old were you? I, just, I think I got that early 90s when they did a reprinting, yeah. I think. Perhaps, but, but I, I don't want you. Now you said no, it is now you'll be in your age, but that is not a book for a young person. No, That's I was a, a little book older. Of nightmares. Yes, I was a little older, so I was uh, I was in college. Um, I, I Brotherhood of the Rose, Fraternity of the Stone, Leak of Night and Fog, mm. Fifth Profession, all those that were written in the eighties. I yes. read I read when they came out. Essentially, Brotherhood of the Rose a few a couple of years later because I was young when that came out. But that's that's what I started. I I knew you from First Blood mm-hmm. movie. And then in the early 90s, then I went back and read they, all the early stuff. I was with Warner Books then, and they did a reprint of all the early, uh, all the earlier books. And I think so. That's that's must have been when I uh, when I read those, because uh, I don't think I was aware of them all until that point. You for couldn't some reason. have been because they went. They were in hardback. They were in paperback. And then as the world turns, without eBooks to keep things uh, in, in permanent, almost print. Uh, after a while they would go out of print and then I was with Warner Books and they said, hey, you know, we want to do some other, bring the other books out. Right. They introduced, they reintroduced those like, with uh, cover, covers that kind of had a similar type of a shine. to. They had a nice look to yeah, them. Yeah, a nice look. So that's when I, I read all those in a row then and I went back and said, I can't believe I haven't read these yet. But uh, I remember the first sentence in that novel it stuck with me. was the last me. morning yeah <laughs> they would be together the father and the mother the man and the wife the, the right the, yeah and then i don't know how many sentences later or paragraphs later something else horrible happens yeah. uh, it was fairly early it on it was talked about a lot there is a shocking it's probably one of the most shocking first chapters uh next to a book of mine called murderers of fine art which has a very shocking first chapter um I remember it, and that's been since early '90s. That's been a few years now. It that's gave, been 20, it gave twenty plus years since I read that. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and it was shocking. I even... said it was so shocking, okay, that I was a professor of American literature at the University of Iowa, and we lived in a nice neighborhood, as a professor's neighborhood. The other families in the neighborhood wouldn't talk to us, and they wouldn't let their children play with my children because I'd written this. I get it. I do worry about that with some of mine. If some of the kids' parents read it, they I, don't care anymore. They don't care anymore. It's all different. The shock, yeah. the shock. Unless so, maybe you were living next to professors. Right. Like. Right. Well, I remember that one, and uh, and that certain. And so that was the the first novel you wrote after First Blood. That's right. And how long? Many years was it after First Blood? It was three years. And uh, writers who are listening, um, there is a syndrome, this well known, the second novel syndrome. And uh, historically, and there's data for this, that people who publish a novel are then asked to write a second one. And the, normally, the writing of that first novel is difficult and takes time and is written at a schedule that's convenient for the author. But now you're in the business. Now they want a second book, and traditionally they want a book every year every year and a half to me this kind of dilutes things but it is the nature of the business 
So the pressure on on the second novelist is such that most people who this might be a little different because of ebooks, but we're talking about traditional publishing. Most people who publish the first novel do not publish the second one. Interesting. Because they can't they see where this is going and they realize it was a case of be careful what you wish for. Um, because the pressure to write the second one um you're not on your schedule anymore you're right. on somebody else's schedule yep uh and so it happened so anyway it took three years to write and part of it was part of the issue was first blood a first novel was unusually well received um i it seldom happened this way. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, Newsweek, Times, Saturday Review, some of these magazines no longer exist. And on and on and on. It, it is, I would say, everywhere reviewed this book. Almost unanimously, uh, we're talking about First Blood, yep. except for Time Magazine. Really? <clears throat> Time Magazine sensed what was happening and that I'd uh, tried a new approach to writing action. And they were extremely critical. They said that I'd invented a new genre and I hadn't exactly invented a new genre. This is the history now we're talking yep. about. Um, but I had invented a new approach. And they said it was carnography, carnography. which was the equivalent of pornography yeah. only in writing action. Interesting. And um, at the time, I kind of stung a little over it. But now, oddly, the guy was right because it changed. And again, I, you know, if I said this in 1972, you'd say, you know, you arrogant fool. But we're now <laughs> looking 47 years later and you can see it happen. It changed the way action was written. And it's one of my regrets, not my regrets, my peeves, because you know, I was trying to get away from the a shot rang out. Right. And I know you don't like that one. Filled the air. Right. Drives me nuts. It's so lazy. <laughs> it's a pulpit goes so by. Can't you do anything better than that? Right. And for a while, I, I flatter myself that maybe it was the influence of First Blood. None of that stuff was there. And it was very clean, vivid writing that, you know, that tried to raise itself. And then in the last oh, five years, I've noticed all this stuff coming back, and you know, I get very upset. <laughs> I <laughs> a know. Shot rang. Believe me, I give me a break. Believe me, I hope that's not in any of mine because I'm I know you. I'll be. <laughs> believe me, I've heard yeah. you talk about this before. <laughs> <laughs> but when did uh, when did you first hear the tagline uh, "Father of the Modern Action Thriller"? I don't remember. Um, it would have been probably in the 90s. Oh, okay. Um, uh, by then, the, the movies had been out and First Blood had been republished. It's never been out of print. Yep. 47 years, it's never been Pretty out amazing. of print. Very unusual. And um, the I, I don't know. Somewhere, some critic, uh, and, you know, I'd have to go through my files, yeah. but I sure liked it. And, it, <laughs> and, you know, in truth, it is the father of the modern action novel. Um, I mean, there have been others... Uh, an author I respect greatly, Stephen Hunter, um, whose who's approach to action is in his own way as, as yes. you know, as fresh. And, you know, I mean, he knows I've talked to him about this. I have great admiration for Stephen Hunter. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there were later ways of doing it, but 
um, you know, it was very flattering and naturally I seized on it. Right. Oh no, that's a good one. That's a badge of honor. That's for <laughs> yeah. sure. That's for sure. And then, so you follow up. And so back then and still into the eighties, I didn't know when your next book was coming out. So if it took three years after first blood, like well, no one knew when it was coming that's out, correct. But, but and, people didn't really expect one a year. And not only that, I'd lost the momentum. Uh, so, you know, again, every year. <clears throat> so now we have a three year gap. And uh, if we could have built, now if the movie had come out, then it would have been a different matter. It's not that the book did badly, but it's just as, as, it's as, as if I was starting again. Right. And then I wrote a Western. And you, you so, said, you know. How, Last Reveille? How, how, yes, Last Reveille, who, which Stephen King said was my best book. And I was talking to Joe Lansdale about uh, Westerns where we go we go back. I know you're big time. on the Westerns. You have the, you have your group, right? That you uh, watch the Westerns. We with? have, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And, you know, there's a way to think of Westerns as really being the basis for all American storytelling. And, but I have uh, <clears throat> a group I belong to, uh, it's a distinguished group that all of whom happen to live in Santa Fe. One is uh, Johnny D. Boggs, who is the most awarded Western novelist of all time. And if somebody says, well, what should I read of his? Try Return to Red River, um, which is uh, a sequel to the Borden Chase novel and the Howard Hawks, John Wayne film, Red River. And what, what Johnny does is, because he knows his stuff, he does the research, is he makes you feel that you are on the cattle drive and you are going to this, to this place and that when you get there, you are really in that town. It's incredibly vivid and full of information. Uh, and uh, anyhow, he is one. Um, Kirk Ellis, uh, who, who uh, run numerous Emmy, won numerous Emmys for uh, HBO's John Adams, and who, as in the, in the Western format, did a Steven Spielberg-produced miniseries called Into the West, which is extraordinary. And uh, then we have uh, Robert Knott, who is a newspaper reporter who has written books about Randolph Scott and Joel McRae and Audie Murphy and uh, collaborated with uh, Max Evans on a book about Sam Peckinpah. Max knew Sam pretty well and also did the films of Bud Bedeker, which are, if you know your Bud Bedeker, Bud and Randolph Scott did six westerns that along with kind of parallel to the James Stewart um, uh, Anthony uh, Mann pictures, you know, this, this kind of psychotic hero uh, against a really demented villain and you know, very stark, almost Richard Stark kinds of westerns. Yeah. And uh, anyhow, he did uh, the films of Bud Bedeker. And then Tom Claggett, uh, who was a film editor years ago, a, a TV editor, he did St. Elsewhere and you know, a lot of the uh, Lou Grant and things like that from the 80s. And he has a numerous novels, one of which a deeply researched book about the last 12 hours at the Alamo. Oh, wow. Because uh, you know, people escaped. People did get away from that. And we, so we know from their accounts what happened at the Alamo before Interesting. it went down. So, you know, so it's a neat group. Yeah. And, the, and that's and they, once a month you guys get together? Once a month. And this is heavy duty. I mean, these are scholars. You guys are form. serious. Yeah. We go in. I mean, if you, uh, you know, often we try to bring things nobody's seen. But the conversations about the history and all, what we did, uh, uh, Johnny also, uh, Johnny Boggs is also the editor of Roundup Magazine for the Western Writers of America. And I uh, wrote a piece 
for Roundup magazine called 20 Significant Westerns to 1969. And we all collaborated and we made the list and I got the credit, but you know, they all helped. <laughs> and so we have 20 titles with the reason why these are must-sees. I think I saw you post about that. Uh, and I may have sent it to you, but there are, you know, there are, would be other significant, these are not the best, right. but these are ones that if you have not seen, you don't want to talk to me about Westerns because you, your history isn't. And isn't Wild Bunch there. is in there. Well, we end in 69 because okay. the Wild Bunch is the Changed game changer. It. And then if we want to follow this for fun, and we're way far afield, but it's fun to talk about, 69 to 80 then is the next group because with Heaven's Gate in 1980, you know, the budget overruns and all the other problems with that film sort of put the death knell on the Western for a time. Okay. And then... You know, we, we get the latter Westerns, uh, Tombstone, yeah. uh, things like that. The one off a of Pale Rider in there in the middle somewhere. Uh, yeah, in the middle, it would be an Unforgiven, of Unforgiven, course, yeah. you know. And, and uh, um, what's the, maybe you can help me, Kevin Costner and Robert Duvall. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, is it Open Range? They have Open Range that came yeah. out later. Yeah, yeah but, that's, but that's, you know, so you could do, like you do three lists to 69 yeah. to 80 and then after. And you did the same thing with the thriller, 100. Thriller, I did. Similar thing. I did a book with Hank Wagner called Thrillers 100 Must Reads. And again, the words are significant. It's not the best, but, you know, uh, and we could have done another 100 uh, thrillers or another 25, but you'd always end with a wild bunch up to 69. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, uh, 69, you have True Grit, John Wayne. Um, uh, yeah, Butch Cassidy and uh, somewhere Butch in Cassidy there. and the Sundance Kid and the Wild Bunch. So what you have is true grit as the traditional western you have butch cassie and the sundance kid is sort of the late 60s version of a western but didn't have a lot of influence it's a fun movie but i never saw anybody say i'm going to make another movie like butch cassie and the sundance kid but the wild bunch ever after you made a movie either that was in that mold breaking or you made a movie to go back before the wild bunch as as if you were making True Grit all over again. Got it. Yeah, the level of violence and realism and yes. all the rest in there. And, then, and John Wayne made some really good films in the 70s that were, you know, I mean, The Shootist is a Shootist. little different. Yeah. But, uh, I that's mean, the that's, last one, that's right? a mod. Yeah, it's his last movie, but that's a modern, you know, that's, right. we sense there's something modern about it, but, you know, if you're uh, you know, Cahill, um, I forget the full title, but, you know, most of these are, throwbacks many of them are fine i'm not criticizing them but it's a question of where you put all these and you know we're far afield of thrillers <laughs> but you can tell i enjoy talking about it because understanding that genre sure. often helps and and as you know it's often been pointed out first blood rambo is the modern gunfighter i i saw it as a western that it's the, he's the wandering gunfighter he wants to hang up his guns the local law won't let him do it and we've seen that over and number. over we've seen that you know and there's a great one of the list names on the list is uh the gunfighter with gregory peck huh. which is the gunfighter that comes back and you know it's a big deal and what's going to happen and it's one day in a saloon with everybody figuring out what's going to happen to this guy now that he's in town you've answered a later question that i had about uh if, if uh, things other than literature uh in the commercial space influenced your writing uh specifically films well it, it was it was two ways that no in my home uh, i i my father died in combat um and i'm you know i'm not young my father died on d-day he was a pilot for the british uh, navy 
Wow. And his job is in your line of work before you became a novelist, you would appreciate this in the pre technology he flew over the coast of france to tell british ships where the shells were landing so wow. they couldn't do the trajectory and uh, you know the barrels could be, be raised or lowered and he was shot down uh, it turned out he survived but he died in a british hospital but, oh wow you know, another another story but and then my mother was unable to raise me if you know, i'm a big fan of social services because of my background and these days you know we have not bad social services, they could be better, but back then it was non-existent. So my mother <clears throat> had to put me in an orphanage. And then when I came back out, my uh, step, she remarried and my stepfather didn't like kids and they fought all the time. And I tell this story that I crawled under the bed at night for fear. And I told myself stories in the dark about me rescuing people. So I always say, people say, how come, you know, PhD, professor, you write thrillers, and there's always a sniffy thing to it. And, uh, and my answer is, it's one that Stephen King said about horror, is what makes you think I have a choice. Interesting. So, anyway. Interesting. And that's obviously influenced your writing. And then maybe we'll come up, circle around back to that. But you specifically did some research to track down your real father. I, yes. My daughter, particularly, she's, uh, she's a detective, sort of. And she, she has found out a lot of things. And uh, there's still some mysteries. But, uh, I'm you know... The, the passage of time and records is no longer, you know, it's been a long time. Uh, and, and it's interesting because years later I became a private pilot and it was only, you know, it was almost, I, part of me believes in reincarnation, you know, certain traits that suddenly appear in us from family sure. history. And, and, you know, one day I was uh, flying and I thought, you know, this is what my father did. Uh, but, uh, you know, whatever that's about. And I'm yeah. not even sure I wanted to be a pilot because of that. I know I want it because of research. Right. Yeah. Which book was that for? The Shimmer. The Shimmer. Uh, the Shimmer. And that was a little later. It Much later. Yeah. I'm, I've taken you all off course. It's <laughs> all right. I had some notes even. Yeah. yeah you had notes. <laughs> but we, we can get, you know, I, I do. I just. No, I love it. Know, I, I just love it. do a free association. Uh, I had heard about the Marfa lights of, of, of West Texas, which are real lights that have been appearing as long as people have been there to see them. Um, uh, the earliest uh, uh, record of them is about 1889 when the first cattle people were, but the, the Native Americans claimed to have seen them before that, but they didn't have written records about it. And uh, uh, they are mysterious. I have seen them. They float up. And they come together in different colors. One goes this way, one goes that way. They do all this stuff, and you, it is so mesmerizing. And the prevailing theory is that it's a form of ball lightning, that the, the sun at that altitude, it's about 5,000 feet, with a quartz-rich soil, perhaps create static electricity ah. which forms balls as the soil cools that's that, just a theory that's the theory you don't really know nobody really knows and i thought this is too good to be true because and again tying in with what you do in world war ii there was a army air base and in those days the army also had the air force in it the air corps yep. so that army base was training pilots there and so they saw the lights, and they, they thought this would be useful for instruction. So oh, really? at night, they used to chase the lights. Wow. 
and they had, uh, you know, by our standards, these are primitive aircraft, but like you could raise the, yeah, <laughs> the canopy. Right. <laughs> but they had paper bags with flour in them. And when they flew to where they thought the lights were originating, they dropped the paper bags. And then in the daytime, they'd go and see what the heck was there. That's pretty what? cool. A couple yeah. of times, the pilots said they were chased by the lights. Interesting. So, so who knows? But also, uh, and that airbase is now like a ruin, but it's right next to where the, if you go to Marfa, there's an outdoor theater, so to speak, and you can, you can, stay, you know, they, where they invite you. I think they even have restrooms. It's pretty nice looking. And, you know, you can, it's, that's where, if you want to see the lights, you go. And uh, people come and have like cameras in trees that are aimed in that direction. And right. every morning they come to retrieve the cameras. And get see, what's it's, see what's out you there. Know, I mean, it, if it works, but, but 20 miles away, there is also a mountain range, which has a observatory. Uh-huh. So I said, all right, let me see this. We got an abandoned air, base, air force base. We got an observatory. We got mysterious lights. I think I can do something with this. And so I, but because I knew aircraft would have to be in it, and like you, you know, I've not had the, the degree of training, obviously, that you had, but you know that I like to go out and oh, yeah. do my thing. So I said, I guess I'm going to have to learn how to fly So in order to do this. Uh, and my original plan was to take a few lessons just to get the idea, but I'm a completist. You're, you're, and you still fly? Uh, not anymore. It's worth talking about. I have a, uh, those, anybody who knows, I have a thousand hours, just under a thousand hours as a private pilot. All right. That's huge. I was talking to a few people here uh, at, at the convention at VoucherCon. And, you know, one had 200, which is respectable. And, you know, others, but a thousand is a lot. But the training for a pilot starts with you are the pilot in command. PIC is the, and just as you have a checklist for the aircraft before you take off, there's a checklist for you, which I fear many pilots do not follow. And, you know, how are you feeling? Are you you getting enough sleep? You got trouble at home? You know, all that stuff. Because, and, you know, what's used in this again and again is the John Kennedy air crash. And there are so many, uh, the theory of air crashes is that it's a chain. And if you can right. break the chain anywhere, it's Got not it. going to happen. Yep. And if you go through, they say that's with the mission too. Yep. And if you go through uh, what happened on that night. Follow uh, it back. Oh, it's so many of them. So uh, tough. So he, you know, not to, I wasn't there and I don't want to, you know, I mean, this was life and death, but sure. I'm not sure pilot in command was necessarily you know, right. work there. So I noticed starting early this year, I'm at 7,000 feet at Santa Fe. So I take off at 7,000 feet. If I'm at sea level, I take off at, let's say 500 feet. You know, it's not sea level, but right. you know, nobody's at sea level, right? you know, water deep, <laughs> you know, but let's say it's 500 feet. So you're going to fly up to maybe 5,500 for a, for a, uh, a, a non-instrument flight and hey, you can go higher, but that's probably where you're going to be. Well, that's lower than where I live. Right. So when I want to get to altitude and I live among mountains, it's most of the time I'm going to fly to at least 10,500 feet. So I noticed starting this year 
that at the end of my flights and I was going out every week that I had a headache. And then I began to review because that's what you're supposed to do. That you know, pilot, you know, pilot is about awareness, and you're in three dimension, and it's serious, you know. So I was going back, looking at these experiences, replaying them, and I realized that I was less sharp at the end of the flight than at the beginning, and that my my landings, while not terrible or dangerous, weren't what they used to be. <laughs> You're getting the picture. Yeah, well, probably something to take note of. And, I mean, they were all right. It's just, you know, I'd say, oh, I can do that better. And then after maybe the third time, I said, you know, let's think about this. So uh, my conclusion was that I was experiencing what pilots know as hypoxia, which is oxygen yep. deprivation. And you're not aware of it when it happens. It's It gradually works on you. But I said to myself, I'm never going to be a better pilot than I am today. And, and I know I'm going to get worse because I, you know, age plus I see the syndrome that's happening. So I uh, abruptly made the decision to quit flying. And uh, Probably smart. A lot of guys probably don't do that. Well, this is, you know, I, I was talking to a pilot here and who's an instructor of a number of young, uh, I think he's in civil air, I don't know. I'd have to go back and talk to him, but he asked permission if he could tell that story to them because, of course, they're young and, hey. and they might. Yeah, yeah. But that, you know, the, the little clues and the awareness that you must be aware of if you're a pilot in order to not put yourself or other people at risk. And so I just took it very seriously. And within a couple of weeks, I sold the plane. It wasn't a, you know, a big jet or anything. <laughs> it was just that my sure. life called it a lawnmower in the sky, you know, and I got around and was this Cessna 172 SP, which means that it has 20, a whole whopping 20 extra horsepower All right. from 160 to 180, but at well, 7,000 feet, that 20, that really oh, yeah. helps. So it comes into play in Afghanistan um, with, uh, with those mountains, with the helos over oh, there. Oh, yeah. Big and time. people don't, you know, and even pilots from sea level don't know, you know, what, what uh, you know, what the, the difference that altitude and temperature yeah. can make in terms of how that aircraft functions. So my wife, is not, I'm sorry, a friend with whom I trained, he's, a, he's an instructor, was speaking to somebody else who's an instructor. And they were, you know, it was a shock because I was out there every week. I was considered the poster child for a civilian pilot. And the one guy thought about it and he says, you know, there's something to be said for walking away on your own terms. There you go. And I hadn't thought of it that way, but, you know. But anyway, long story, but it's instructive. Yep. No, absolutely. You're probably, you're probably smart. A lot of guys probably don't do that and end up, uh, you know, yeah. around. Uh, but you do a lot of that. You don't, you don't mess around for these things. You did a Knowles course yeah. very early on oh, for, yeah. for the second novel, right? That's correct. Yeah. You did Knowles course there, and I did one as well. Did you? Uh, Where did, were you? I did Alaska around, in and around Denali. Oh, you know, I was going to go up, and then I, mine was at, in Wyoming in the Wind, Wind River. River yeah. Yeah, so 35 days. How long was yours? Yeah, so I did a semester. So I did the oh, uh, okay. 70 something. So, but you came in and out, or were you living in the mountains all for, that time? Uh, Two thirds of it, we were in the mountains okay. and then came out for a day and then went out sea kayaking for the rest of it. it it's uh, life changing. It is. It's amazing. And it worked. And the solo as part of that. I was on yeah. an island for, I think, three full days yep. uh, doing the, the fasting and all that. But it actually worked its way into the pages of it, novel and three. It, and it changes you. Um, for mine, we were, we were in the Wind River Range for 33 days, something like that. We had to hike in. We carried our own uh, food. And, you know, people say, well, why don't you live off the land? And what? And one of the things you learn in all this is that 
you expend as much energy scavenging as you do getting the food. It's a zero-sum thing, unless you can hunt or fish. And then, you know, but at that point, you know, you need vitamin C and all that. And you, you, you know, there were stone crop flowers and stuff that you could eat. Um, but our graduation was we took all our food away, and we had our map and compass and some water, and we had three days later to meet. Yep. You did they still do it. Like, yep. Okay. They still do that. And I want my kids to do it. I need to. I need to kind of usher them in that direction because it's oh, such a valuable life experience. They went over the over the continental divide, you know, using the map and the compass, and to a trailhead where they were waiting. And it was very cruel because <laughs> they had all this food there. And and after three days of not eating, some of the students just rushed uh, and they were eating hamburgers. Oh. And I said, this does not look right, right. to me. See? So I took a banana and I chewed on that sucker. Watched everybody else throw up, maybe? Oh, did they really? <laughs> uh, everybody was throwing up. Oh. And I don't know, maybe that was part of the, part of the I deal. <laughs> I don't know. But it was very um, <sighs> maturing yeah. to know what you could you know, three days, you know, you, you, you tell them what's the three, 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 three for survival. So the three, what, three minutes, it's, it's, and it's, it fluctuates it dates, depending yeah, on a bunch exactly. of different things, but uh, what, three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, three weeks without food, that sort of thing. And three hours without yeah. heat. Okay. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, so it's, they fluctuate a little bit, yeah. but, uh, but you've done a lot of that sort of thing. I mean, you, yeah. I remember, I remember reading the little things that I could read here and there were really in. The, the author's note or the yeah. uh, the preface or uh, you know so some way that you were being you were being able to talk to to the reader about I, what, I, uh, what I like done. doing and you should maybe do this I don't know if you do I, it doesn't occur to me I don't remember but um, I like to put afterwards in which I say you know like what the most common question we get is where do you get your ideas and where did this book come from so readers have a right to know that uh, uh, and I you know I think it's interesting so I try to put an afterword or an introduction depending if it's a reprint or not that would talk about um, you know where this idea came from you know Brotherhood of the Rose I was in an orphanage and I had heard about this school in Philadelphia that was an orphanage that trained people to basically enter the military and you know one thing and another and and you know a, a, gradually a book evolved and it's fun to tell that story and so um you know you might think about putting yep. that that some of it uh, there too because um uh, i think people really enjoy it and and one other thing i did um i saw a movie called ronin with robert de niro great film it's a great it's one of the three great car chases i love it right? it is they did a great job with that completely underappreciated french connection mm-hmm. bullet amazing Ronan and they're they're high speed. Mm-hmm. That's not you know yeah. undercranked or anything. And and John Frankenheimer was oh what a great director. It was so many mentoring candidate three days in May and or seven days in May and you know. But um, so I was watching and I said you know I've never seen a car chase in a novel. Or if I have, I knew I didn't believe it. So I thought I wonder it might be fun to have a car chase, a car fight. And so I had a friend who worked for the diplomatic security service. And uh, I said, where do you guys go to learn how to handle vehicles when you're with, uh, you know, doing executive protection? And uh, he asked around and he said, 
sometimes they go to the Bill Scott Raceway in West Virginia. I don't know if they still do or if it's still. BSR. I went there. BSR. Oh, you did. I did. Yeah. Oh my! It, we got you know a lot in <laughs> common. So, uh, and the day I was there, first of all, they you know normally it's either um, you know uh, uh, DSS or uh, marshals or you know the security service for the president. Um, and, or, um, it, and when I was there, it was drivers for the top drivers for the top people in industry, the Ford people who drive Ford Got it. guys, yeah. you know, and I, you know, I said to them, I said, so, you know, cause they go to Mexico and all that. And I said, so you're worried about stuff down there. He says, no, we're worried about disgruntled employees. Yeah. Well. He says, we're worried about somebody going out cause he got fired or what have you. And, uh, and the day I was there, the Canadian version of Delta Force was training on the parallel track. Yeah. That was cool. Oh, yeah. So, you know, as you're aware, so we spent a week. How long were you there? It's fun. I was there, I think, four days or five yeah. days. I can't remember. I was there four, and then there was a shooting, which you, you wouldn't have needed, but I was there for a shooting uh, uh, thing. And you shoot through glass and all that? Yeah. I did and, the same thing. They had targets in there. We could see what bullets did through glass. Yeah, yeah. And, and windshields. Yep. And also... Um, tanks of in of vehicle tanks filled with yep. fuel and you know and i just this too drives me crazy where you know oh, boom 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 big explosions <laughs> you shoot unless you have special ammunition or there's a spark you can shoot a whole holes in gas tanks and all you're going to get is leaky <laughs> get gas, fuel yeah, coming out. and you can maybe light that on fire, but you are not <laughs> going to get this massive stuff that happens. And it drives me nuts. Just a little research, you know, that way yeah. movies have destroyed some scenes in, in books. Right. And then, and the other thing, you know, as you know, you see in movies and I'm sure you've in real life, you did a lot of this where you see people, you weren't doing this, but you know, so you got the car and you open the car door and you're ducking down behind right, the car. Door. Whiz right through. They whiz right through. <laughs> and not only that, they'll whiz through the car this way yep. and all that. So get behind that engine block. Yep, and, exactly. I did and, that same course. And don't move. Yeah. They so did the same thing. It was great, you know, and fighting, doing the spins and all so that. So much and, fun. And you, you know, you can, <laughs> it's uh and, and anyhow, I did, I, in a book called the protector, yep. I got to use uh, the, the car fight. Yep. And that's so much fun to be able to, to do that. And in your books, in the end of the year, books i got to see oh wow who made the knives in these oh look at yeah. this guy because you talk about them and then who made the bow ah i think hoyt made one and it was he like, did. wow look at that and but you had that in there and then in the 80s you don't know what to do because there's no internet so you got to find a bow magazine and then like look yeah. through there and it but it made it it made it fun it gave me so much to do uh, yeah. and so much to think about uh some magazines i think it was called u.s cavalry or brigade quartermaster yeah. i think those were the two that came out that uh, might have sold some of those things back in the uh, the early yeah. 80s, mid 80s um so it was a uh, you, you sent me on a lot of different uh different paths as far as being able to explore well, the different gear used in well the, the knife the well. knife for the first two rambo films was made by jimmy lyle the arkansas knife smith i never had a chance to meet him i spoke to him on the he had a thick Arkansas accent. I, I, I used to say it was like the flu. As soon as I was done talking to him, I talked, you know, suddenly I was, I had an accent. And then Jimmy, alas, passed on. And uh, Gil Hibben, uh, who's, a, who's a friend, I know Gil and his wife, uh, uh, Linda, very well. And, uh, and then he did the knives for the third and fourth films. And you have those, those knives, first editions. They were home. made... Uh, Jimmy and Gil made for me exact replicas of those knives, marked author's copy. Very cool. Because the others were sold as numbered. 
Okay. So a thousand dollars for one of right. one hundred, you know. And at the time, that was a lot. That of money. was a lot. I remember because I wanted them, and uh, back in the eighties, there was no way that was happening. It was not. <laughs> uh, and now you can't get them. Although yeah. Jim uh, uh, Gill still makes the Rambo three and the machete. Uh, I don't know what he sell, what he charges for them. Yeah, but, no, I've, you looked, know. I've looked recently. They'll be added to my collection at some point. I'll track down some of those first ones at uh, at some, some one day. Well, if you ever you know if you ever do, I'll tell you. I'll, you know, I'll tell Linda that you know. Oh, thank and you. And he might you know do a little. Oh, awesome. We'll see. Awesome. Well, I loved. Uh, yeah, I love doing that, exploring those things. And you. Uh, so when you look back now at these different at the, from first blood to today to whatever to your next mm-hmm. project. Um, do you look at it as a, a flow that uh, that was a natural flow from one project to the next or one uh, group of projects to the next? Or do you look at it as distinctly different periods and uh, and times in your in the profession of writing where in the 70s you were doing something and then with Brotherhood of the Road, it changed for a few novels for the, those three yes. in that series and then a couple more afterward and then you switched to this. That's what that, happened. It's, that it's crazy. It's insane. <laughs> was uh, it intentional well, to do it that way? in those days, there wasn't any theory about branding. You know, those, those of you who are not in the publishing world, the big word in, brand, in, in publishing is branding. Get, you know, define yourself and never vary. You know, don't break the brand. <clears throat> so You have not done that. I have not done that. <laughs> Probably to my detriment. Um, I saw writing <clears throat> as a method of self-fulfillment, as a way to research things I was interested in and then write books that would be different enough that maybe they'd influence other people. And also that they would have things about me or my ideas or they would have try to have an influence because they were very distinctive to yep. me. And, and I'm, I, I bet you've, you've either heard me say this or you've read, my two mantras are be a first-rate version of yourself and not a second-rate version of another person, yep. which is good in any circumstance. Yes. Yes, um, I pass that along to my kids. And uh, you know, in the in the gunfighting world, the best I ever heard was surround yourself with people of quality and substance. I like it. Uh, uh, yeah, I, that's from uh, Colonel. Um, come on, Cooper? Lieutenant. Uh, no, uh, come on. On combat, on killing. Oh, uh, J- uh, Grossman. Yeah, from Lieutenant Colonel uh, Grossman. Dave Grossman. These are these are great books. Yep. Yep. On Read combat and on killing. Yep. And. Um, the other mantra is don't chase the market. You'll always see its backside. You're reading my notes. You're looking at my notes. Oh, hey, nah, what do we got? It's yeah. in there. Look at that. Don't chase the market right there. Be <laughs> a first rate version. I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you right about these. on time. Yep. Right. Um, <laughs> and, 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 but these are, these are good things to follow. Um, I can't guarantee anybody would be a bestseller with these, but, but the worst thing one could do is be something you're not and write something you don't, but you're, Maybe it'll sell, and it takes us six months or a year. It takes me a year to write a book, at least. Oh yeah, and when you and and you're and, and and you're done if you didn't believe in it. It doesn't sell. You know, all we have is time. The only currency that matters to us is time. Uh, so um, anyhow, what happened was that I waltzed through the genres. I did two outdoor action books, First Blood and Testament. I did my western, Last Reveille, which is about Blackjack uh, Pancho Villa raided a southwestern town, Columbus, New Mexico, in 1916. It looked like maybe the Germans, because the war was going on, did it. You know, they instigated them. So there were these panicked meetings in Washington, and they sent... Blackjack Pershing and two columns of cavalry, and basically we invaded Mexico. It's insane. 
they never did catch him, but it turned out they were practicing to enter World War One. And that's where I learned all about that from. I didn't learn about it from a history book. I learned it, all you that would from have your trouble novel. finding that. Yeah. You know, I just because of the Wild Bunch, and yep. I said, what can I do that's sort of like that? But my own thing in historical starts with some quotes from uh, actual uh, parts of the New York Times from the period. And uh, oh, I just loved writing that book. And then, God help me, I wrote a horror novel called The Totem. Um, and so you can see that I was either demented or else that I was searching and looking. And But it was wildly interesting to me right. to do these. And then in the 80s, uh, I was writing espionage. And I did a book that I'm not too fond of called Blood Oath because it was heavily edited. And it's really not. I was going to ask you about that one because it came out again with a change to it. Didn't you re- did uh, it get reprinted with? I, I, you know, I, I sort of, ending, I sort of blank it out. Okay, got uh, it. <laughs> it. It was republished. Um, maybe it wasn't. I, I remember a time I they redid when I, it with a different ending I and maybe a different to, beginning. Oh no, no, that was the that was the totem that I, the totem happened twice. But with Blood Oath, it was so right. heavily edited. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it became almost a young adult book. Got it. Okay. And and as that on that level, it works, but it just simply wasn't the book. And then. Because I was in that, the Brotherhood of the Rose happened. And that was a game changer. I mean, that was not only for me, but it was for the genre. Because I, John Le Carre's Tinker Tinker Soldier Spy was coming out as a miniseries on uh, PBS. And he, people sort of knew about the spy who came in from the cold, but he was not in a household name. But they promoted Le Carre, who in his... You know, David Cornwell was really in the business right. in uh, in the UK. So uh, I got to thinking that you know there wasn't a whole lot of. In fact, there's almost no action in Le Carre. Right. Um, it's kind of gray-faced men in dim rooms plotting and doing it brilliantly, and we learned how it all happens. But you know, like. We could use a little Rambo <laughs> stuff in there. I love and, it. And and my, I wasn't gonna say it, my agent at the time was uh, handled Robert Ludlum. Huh. So I had met Ludlum, and I'd certainly read his books, and I had read The Mattery Circle and The Born Identity, which I continue to feel are Bob's two best books. Um, and I said, you know, because and, and Robert Ludlum's spy stuff is not good, shall we say. Mm-hmm. There is a, It's a kind of made up it's you know if you look at it you say come on give me a break <laughs> but you know there was lots of running around so it worked and i thought what if you took the action of ludlum or in my case rambo and married it with authentic spy tradecraft this would be something new and it was uh, it it was i mean it, it it if it wasn't one of the first it was the first to do this and uh the trick that before the internet was how to get this information. So, yeah, I'm reading Le Carre, and, and so I'm cribbing from him, but that doesn't sound very satisfying. <laughs> but by coincidence at the time, uh, a publisher began to release uh, mass, mass market paperback uh, series of books about espionage. Huh. And I learned about somebody named James Jesus Angleton. Yep. I was going to ask you about him. Who was the chief counter-espionage guy for the CIA. 
he was looking for spies in the agency. Yep. And uh, I got to thinking that he would make a good villain. I mean, not Angleton, but, you know, that right, would. Right. And, and the reason for this is, and it's so fascinating, uh, for a while, CIA operations had been not working out. And people were saying, why is this? Do we have a, you know, and, and the word mole is not authentic spy trade craft. Ah. Le Carre invented that. Really? He invented a lot of terms, which then became part of the spy world. They just thought it was fun. But the mole was his. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. It's fun. So. Uh, did you ever what, meet Angleton? Was he still uh, alive then? Not, no. Uh, he may have been, but I think he was uh, I don't think he would have wanted to meet me anyhow. But <laughs> but not. what I what I learned was that um, two defectors had come over in the late '60s, and each had a different story. One contradicted the other. So who was lying? And they were both. This was serious stuff they were talking about. So was one disinformation from the soviets for the other right or was the first guy the liar and how were we to react to this so anyway they had they 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 interrogated both of the of these folks and they couldn't figure it out and then and angleton had always been going around saying that uh there was a spy and then people began to think well maybe angleton's the spy and so basically this whole hunt paralyzed the agency and the way they solved it was to fire Angleton and pretend none of this happened and just go on and see what, what went on. So this was so good that I decided that he would be the sort of the prime mover. And remember, he's a fictional version here, but and uh, Ellie er, Angleton uh, liked uh, to grow orchids, but I thought my guy's got to grow roses because that's a symbol of secrecy. Yeah. And Elliot's favorite, or I keep saying, uh, Angleton's, yeah, Sub Rosa. That's where I learned about Sub Rosa. Angleton's favorite flower was, um, like the poet was uh, Auden. So I thought, I'm going to call my guy Elliot, T.S. Elliot, you know, who's Love sort it. of in competition with Auden. I did not know and, that about uh, Elliot. So um, anyway, the, it, there's a way to read The Brotherhood of the Rose. Uh, and the character of Hardy FBI nemesis is a real, based on a real person okay. named Harvey. And uh, he did the same thing. And he was the guy that brought down Angleton, so to speak. Okay. You know, we have to be, even with the realm of history, I don't want to, you know, cast dispersions. Um, but um, so I incorporated all this fictionally into the novel. So there's a way to read it as a history of the spy world up to 1984. Oh, yeah. I learned a lot from and, that book. And at the same time, you know, have all the all the characters but, oh, no, i learned it i learned a lot from that I learned sub rosa it's coming handy many yeah, a time absolutely and uh you know all that stuff stuck it stuck back then everything i read from you back in the 80s all that stuff whatever for whatever was going on in my mind right there all of that stuff well, you certainly absorbed it well and, and because we have uh just a little time what then you know i got interested in other kinds of uh thrillers and then eventually and and i actually wrote a book called creepers another favorite of mine uh first blood brotherhood of the rose and creepers would be the next um, which is a thriller that feels like a ghost story without any ghosts in it. And then um, my recent books, Murder as a Fine Art Inspector, The Dead and Ruler of the Night, which are Victorian thrillers. They're mysteries as well, but they're, they're thrillers with plenty of action. 
But there again, that history that I'm interested in, that can I make the reader believe the reader is in 1854 London and learn uh, about Victorian, the Victorian world the way they did about the spy world or about 1916 Mexico or what have you. So um, the, the, the good news is I've had a very rewarding career and I've, I've been able to write what I wanted and to enjoy myself and to fulfill myself. But it, in a way, it's been a zero sum because you're supposed to choose a type of genre or niche and write it stick and write it. it and stick to it, whereas I sort of varied this way and that way. So I'd lose some readers. I'd gain some readers. You know, it never went. It never declined. It never rose. It just was a straight, which is if you think that the average career, at least until recently, was 20 years, I think that the reason I'm still being read 47 years is because I did that because I changed it up and yep. I, re I reinvented myself. Yep. And I think the reinvention is good for me and, and good for my book. Well, it's uh, thank you for doing them. We only have a couple minutes here, one minute. So uh, let's, I want to do this again. Yes, and when absolutely. you are, if, if, if I could come out to see you maybe in Santa Fe yeah, on no, your terms and, yeah. and come on out there when it works for you, I would love to sit down because I have Three more pages. We have three more questions no, obviously to, uh, you've, to get you've, through. You've, you know, you're enthusiastic and you've studied my work. And I, you know, I do chat, but it's in my nature to try to get to the core of things instead of, you know, just sort of mention a few things and nobody. Let's perhaps, do it again. I want to ask anything. you about the comics. I want to ask you, we'll talk more Rambo stuff. I want to talk more Wolverine, all of it. Captain yeah. America. So I want to delve in there. All but right. uh, we'll thank you so much. One. Thank you so much for being well, my here. Pleasure. It's a, it's a sincere honor to, uh, to get to spend some time with you. And, uh, now we have a dinner to go to. Absolutely. And good luck with you. all your work. Thank you so much. Stellar, stellar so far. I appreciate that. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll be back together again soon. Okay. Terrific. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. You can find more on David Morell at David Morell. That's M-O-R-R-E-L-L.net. Not.com.net. A ton of great information on there, not just about his work, but advice for new aspiring writers. So definitely check that out. And you can link to from there to his Facebook page where he engages quite regularly uh, and his uh, Twitter account as well. So be sure and check him out. If you haven't read David Morell before, you are in for a treat. There is uh, an incredible body of work uh, starting with First Blood and going up right through today. So he has, uh, he has never put down that pen and I thank him for sharing his gift with the world. So be sure and check him out once again, davidmorell.net. And you can follow me at officialjackcar.com and uh, on the social channels at jackcarusa. So if you like the podcast, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And until the next time, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.